0: Well, today is the last Sunday before the start of a new year. And that's kind of wild to, for me to think, actually. It's, it's hard to believe that Christmas has already passed. Uh, when I think of the calendar year, uh, time just seems to fly by. Uh, but we are the last Sunday of what's going to be a new year. And I know for me that uh, New Year's are wonderful times, and I think for many of you in the room, the New Year is a wonderful time to begin thinking about your life. What are the habits you've got going that are good? What are the habits you've got going that aren't so good? Where's your faith? I think for a lot of folks are getting ready to make New Year's resolutions. We all know about New Year's resolutions, and I want to challenge you, as I do every year around this time of year. I want to challenge you that if you're going to be making resolutions for how you can further yourself or or or, or grow this year, make sure that you're checking in and taking inventory of your faith and your walk with Christ. And I want to start today by asking you: How is your walk with the Lord? I think for a lot of folks, what happens is we go through life and years go by and we're kind of at the spiritual plateau where there's no growth taking place and we're kind of stuck in the same routines we've always done. And the problem with that is that those same routines, they're not bad, they're wonderful. However, for a life of sanctification, that's growing with Christ, right? Preparing for your glorification, that's your eternity with Christ. But a life of sanctification should not be stuck in the same habits and routines year after year after year. Rather, we ought to be growing each year. And so I think the end of the year, preparing for a new year, is a great opportunity for every Christian to take stock of their faith and spend some time in biblical reflection. How are you doing? What does your prayer life look like? What does your time in the Word look like? What new habits need to be formed in you? What's your heart of worship like throughout the day? Are you the kind of person that's praying ceaselessly, regularly finding yourself in times of prayer, caught up in worship just because God's good? And you're walking down the sidewalk singing worship tunes. Why? Just because it's on your heart. Where is God growing you? And where do you need to grow? Uh, Today, one of the ways I want to approach this topic is not necessarily by thinking generally about how we can all do that. I'll I'll let you uh, reflect with the Lord what God might be doing in your own heart in terms of next spiritual steps and growing. I want to think together about the Lord's Supper, okay? The communion meal. Today's entire sermon is going to be dedicated to asking the question, what is the significance of this communion meal that we take together? Now, that might, sound as I, that might sound like some kind of dissonance between what I just said, how is your spiritual walk with the Lord, and what's the significance and meaning of the Lord's Supper? Those two things might sound, well, what do those have to do with each other? And I think that it is my fault as a pastor for not better equipping and educating us to help us understand how deeply those two things are ingrained with each other. Uh, This communion meal is far more than just a rote kind of mechanism of religion, that we come in the door, and every week or every other week, as often as we're taking this communion meal together, we kind of go through the religious motions, practicing the traditions, celebrating the ceremony, and off with our day. Really no real meaning here in the heart. Now, I don't mean to say that we have done that in the past. I think we've tried to amplify this to a good degree. But what's happened to me over the last year and a half, since COVID began, let me back up for you. Since COVID began, we had to ask hard questions. How do we do the Lord's Supper during COVID? For three months, we were shut down. We didn't meet on a Sunday. And if you recall, when COVID started, during those three months, I wrote a long piece saying, what do we do about the Lord's Supper during a quarantine? How do we do this? How do we think theologically, biblically about this? Is it biblically permissible? Because at the end of the day, we want to be Bible people. We, want to, we don't just want to go through religious ceremonies. We want to say, what does the Bible say? That's what I'm trying to teach us week in, week out. And as a pastor, the thing that keeps me up late at night, late at night is asking and, and wondering, "Lord, is the, is the Bible being formed in our people? What are the issues, and what are the things that we're navigating, and are they thinking biblically about this? And I believe that if we think rightly and biblically about the Lord's Supper, that what we will find is that it may be one of the more significant keys to unlocking you taking your next steps in the Lord in your walk with the Lord in really deepening your resolve, deepening your convictions, walking through week in, week out, as if you really get this thing and you're growing and you're going somewhere. If I can walk us through faithfully today, I think maybe the Lord will use it in that way. So we're going to spend an entire sermon looking at the Lord's Supper today. Also, I don't get many sermons where I can kind of pick the passage that we're going to go on. I have the whole next year planned out. We're going to be hitting the book of Daniel as we head towards the end of January, spending a good chunk of the year in the Old Testament prophet. Cannot wait to dig in that, but this might be my last chance in a while to teach on the Lord's Supper, so I'm excited for it. All right, so Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26. We're going to be in verses 26 through 28. Now what we have here, before I dig into these words, these are Jesus' command to practice the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a sacrament. Now maybe you've heard that term before, sacrament. It comes from the old word mystery, all right, that's mysterion, was translated into the Greek as sacrament. So the Latin word mysterion was translated as, into the word sacrament in the Greek. And what we have in the sacrament is it's something that Jesus commanded we practice So he gave instruction to the church to do. And then when you look at the early New Testament church, you see them practicing it regularly, right? So here in our passage today, we have Jesus, the recording of Jesus commanding that we practice the Lord's Supper together. This passage takes place the night of the Passover, It's shortly before Jesus was betrayed. The men, the disciples are sitting in the upper room. If you can remember the scene, Jesus is about to be betrayed and crucified, but first he gathers his disciples together and they share this meal together. And it wasn't just any meal, it was a Passover meal. And then at the moment in the Passover meal, and I'll walk through some of those details in a moment, but at the moment in the Passover meal where he takes the bread and the wine, Jesus then adds something new to that moment in that Passover meal. And he says these words, Matthew 26, verses 26 to 28. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples. And he said, take, eat. That's a command. This is my body. And he took a cup. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Word of the Lord. Let's consider the context a little bit before we dig into really what Jesus meant and how we can practice this well. It was the Passover meal. Now, what was the Passover meal? A couple of years ago, we studied the book of Exodus together, and if you recall, what was the Passover? The Passover is the celebration, the annual celebration in the Jewish calendar of remembering when God delivered the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. It was this remarkable moment, and the details are really important, and should kind of get your heart going when you think about this because remember israel's history if you're a christian is your history you've been adopted into the family christian so when you read of moses and you read of the israelites you're reading your family's story that you've been adopted into the israelites were in slavery under a terrible ruthless slave master that was named pharaoh uh, 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 the leader of egypt in the old testament and, and Pharaoh was a ruthless leader, and he was killing people, and God brought these plagues upon the land of Egypt. And these plagues were designed, one, to strike terror in the people of Egypt, but two, to demand that Pharaoh let the Israelites go, because that was God's plan for them. But Pharaoh resisted. Pharaoh had a hardened heart, and he wouldn't let the people go, and it kept getting worse and worse. And the final plague that was coming, the final plague God sent, was the death of every firstborn in the land of Egypt, Talk about the wrath of God coming on a nation for disobedience, the death of every firstborn. And God called the Israelites together. He said, here's what I want you to do. An angel's gonna come and strike dead every firstborn in this land. If you want to be protected, take a lamb, kill it, take the blood of the lamb, pour it over, or put it over the doorposts of your house, and then you bring your family underneath that home. Now, what's happening in that moment? Followers of God are going underneath the blood of a lamb as the Passover blood is is put over the doorpost. They're hiding underneath the blood of this lamb. And when the angel came, he'd see the blood on the doorpost and he'd pass over that home. That's where we get the idea of Passover from. Every year the Jews would celebrate this. In fact, they still do today. That's what they're celebrating when God passed over them and their firstborns were spared while the firstborns of Egypt were taken. And it was after that plague that Pharaoh finally let the Israelites go where they headed to the Red Sea. Every part of this Passover meal had contextual relevance. Every part was very important. Sometimes in church, what we'll do is we'll practice a Seder dinner. Uh, a Seder meal where we actually go through a Passover and we show you what every element in a Passover meal around the time of Passover, what it has to do with Jesus. It's all very symbolic. So Jesus is doing all these symbolic things. For example, here's a few of them. In the Passover meal, they would take unleavened bread. What was the significance of unleavened bread? Well, it was reminding them that they left Egypt in haste. They didn't even have time to allow their bread to leaven. Right? And to rise. And so every year when they practiced it, they ate unleavened bread. And that was the reason why, to remind themselves of the haste they left. Every year they would eat bitter herbs. Bitter herbs. When you would practice at the Seder dinner, oftentimes you'll eat horseradish or something like that. And when the idea is to put a sting in your mouth. Why did they do that? The bitter herbs were significant for them. It reminded them of the bitterness of their slavery and the bitterness of the trials of the people of Israel that God had saw them through. And so they're going through all these symbolic significant moments in the Passover meal. That's what Jesus would have been celebrating with his disciples at this moment. And then he gets to the part with the bread and the wine. And rather than taking the simple, historic way of practicing the Passover meal, Jesus takes these two elements and he infuses them with their fullest meaning. He infuses them with perfect revelation to understand what the bread and the wine was always supposed to signify. He says, this is my body, with the bread, and this is my wine, which is poured out for you for the forgiveness of sins. And he tells them, he looks at his disciples, and in fact, he's looking at us afterwards because we know in the New Testament this was regularly practiced and commanded of every follower of Christ to practice, just like the disciples did. That's 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, take this, eat of it in remembrance of me. He's adding deeper value, deeper significance than they would have understood before. Now, there's some historic language I want to make sure you understand, and I want you to take this away. One of my goals as a pastor is to make every one of you a good theologian. I want you to think rightly about the Bible, and I want you to be able to put it together well, right? The historic words I want you to remember are that the sacraments are signs and seals, okay? If that's new language to you, that's okay. I want you to remember it. They're signs and seals of your faith in Christ. Signs and seals of your faith in Christ. This language is very important. What's a sign? A sign just means that it's significant. It's pointing towards something, right? This, this physical image, this outward sign, it's pointing towards a deeper inward spiritual reality. And they're seals. This is where I think we oftentimes get it wrong as we forget about the seal part of it. Think of a seal like a signet ring on a king who would take a letter and he'd put it in his ring in wax and he'd stamp it on it. And it, that signet ring does not necessarily make the letter any more authoritative. It was already authoritative. You know, you don't need this to prove your faith. Your faith is already legitimate. What this does is it's like a signet ring that reminds you of the seal and the, the authority of the king, the stamp of approval on the legitimacy of your faith, both to yourself as well as to the outside watching world. Now, Let's walk through both of those. I want to help you walk through what this means. They're signs and they're seals. Historic language. When we say they're signs, there's two kind of classifications of that. On the one hand, the elements themselves, the bread and the wine, those elements are significant. And they're a sign about something, some deeper truth. But then where I think our church maybe has got some things wrong, and and in my study, what God's done with me over the last year, and I've been in a deep dive working through some of this to make sure we get this right. There's some of the ceremonial aspects to taking the Lord's Supper together that we see in Jesus' words in the passage that I think are very important for us that are also signs for us that I'm not certain we've practiced well together as a church before. First, let's start with the bread and the wine, the elements. What are they signs of? Well, first Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty six. For as often as you eat this bread, this is repeating Jesus' words, and eat for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This, as you hear me say whenever we take this, is a proclamation meal. It's reminding us of the death of Jesus Christ. The bread is a picture for us of his body that was broken for us on the cross. The wine is a picture of his blood that was shed for us on the cross. And we know from Scripture that there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. And so literally Jesus gives his life for Christians on the cross that we might have all of our sins forgiven. If you notice in the passage we read today, he actually says that very clearly. Matthew chapter 26, he says, For this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The Christian knows that the only way to have a right relationship with God, to have all of your sins forgiven, to have it made right between you and God, is to place your faith in what Jesus Christ has done for you on the cross and to trust him fully. I want to say a note here. Historically, we have used juice in this church. Now, this might sound like a little thing. I actually think it's very important. Jesus commanded that bread and wine be used. And I've been prayerfully reflecting on this and asking, why is it that we use juice? It's just the the tradition that I inherited as a pastor. This is just what we've always done in this church. And I began to really think through, well, wait a second. The sign that Jesus used was bread and wine. Many of the great reformed minds in history have have always said, we do not have authority to change the sign, to modify the sign, because as soon as you start changing the sign, it's not the sign that Jesus made. Now, I don't want to go so far as to say that we have been in sin practicing it with juice instead of wine, but the more I've reflected on this, the more I've asked the question, why haven't we been using wine? This was the Lord's sacrament that he ordained. And so in the coming months, and what we're going to be doing is making some adjustments. I don't have the wine. Today we'll be using juice. I'm not going to make any rash changes here today. But over the next few months, I'll be teaching more on this, and we'll be bringing wine into this to practice the way the Lord intended this to be practiced. Now, for some of you, if you have if there, if you're a, absolutely no wine in your life, we'll, we'll always make juice available for you. But I'm reminded that the Lord said, the bread and the wine— Secondly, what's the sign? The, the elements remind us of the full hope of the new covenant. This is important, the full hope of the new covenant. First Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, "This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. This cup is the new covenant in my blood." The Christian recognizes the significance of what this means, that we are no longer under the fullness of the old covenant. The old covenant had its purpose, had its place. That was a shadow of the greater covenant yet to come. And now we're underneath the fullness of the new covenant. And everything that that means, that all of our sins have been forgiven and all of the righteousness of Christ, his standing as the legitimate son of the king, the legitimate son of God, now is imputed to us fully when we put our faith in Jesus Christ. We've been brought fully into the kingdom, and there's now nothing that can separate us from the love of God. Romans chapter eight, verse one. There's therefore now no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Listen to the difference between the old and the new covenant in Hebrews chapter eight. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will establish a new covenant with the house of Israel. That's talking about this new covenant that Jesus established. And with the house of Judah, For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. Verse 12. For I will be merciful towards their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. When we take this meal, one of the things that we're reminding of that Jesus said right here in this verse is, we're no longer solely under the old covenant. We're under the new covenant. All of the fullness of it that all of our sins have been fully washed away, there's no more sacrificial lamb to be slain, Jesus is the final one, and everything the New Testament means, everything the New Covenant promises, that God's law would be written on our hearts, is true. Now look, If I want to slow down here. Please make sure you're taking this in, because what I want to have happen in the life of this church is that regularly when we come to this table and we practice this together, all of this is going through your heart and your mind the Lord's death and resurrection for me, the fullness of the new covenant that was promised from ages before Christ came. And number three, spiritual sign, spiritual nourishment, John chapter six, verses 56 to 57. Jesus says this. Now, these verses are very interesting. Jesus said these words not specifically about the Lord's Supper. He was speaking more symbolically about what it means to follow him as a whole. However, I think there's application for us when it comes to Lord's Supper. John chapter six Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. Now, was Jesus proposing some kind of cannibalism in this moment? (laughs) No. He was not. The idea here Jesus is getting at is that we are to feed on him spiritually. We are to bring all of the spiritual nourishment that we need for our life to go forward in a relationship with God. We get by feeding on the goodness of Christ. How do we do that? Well, we do that week in, week out by living as faithful Christians. Drawing near to God through prayer. Drawing near to God through fellowship and through community. Through studying the word of God, applying it, praying ceaselessly, living in a sanctifying life that's constantly growing and reflecting and and never settling for stagnation. This is how we spiritually feed on Christ. And then when we come to the table and we take these elements, it's a sign for us of that deeper truth that God's been doing in us throughout the week on our own. As we've been spiritually feeding our souls, we now they take this as a sign to remind us of that spiritual nourishment that we are dependent on. Because there's no life without spiritually nourishing our souls on Jesus Christ. You can't have it. Okay, the elements have significance behind them. Now what about the procedures? This is where I think maybe we get, we've lost some things over the years. And I want to help elevate the communion meal to us. If you look at the story in Matthew chapter 26, one of the first things Jesus does, it says, now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and after blessing it, broke it. One of the first things Jesus does is that he blesses the meal that they're about to take. We oftentimes practice something like this when you're in your home and you say grace before a meal. That's a normal practice for a lot of Christians. It was always true of the people of God in the Old Covenant. They'd always bless their meal before they ate it. But this particular meal was a blessing where he was setting aside these elements, praying over them and reserving them for the particular responsibility and task of being used to be symbolic of Jesus's body and blood poured out for us. He says a particular prayer over them, that they would be appropriate means for that task to be accomplished. Secondly, what does he do? He blesses it, and then he breaks the bread. Now, this is something I haven't done since COVID started, but, but he actually took the loaf of bread, and in their presence, he broke it. Throughout church history, most churches that have practiced the Lord's Supper, they take the bread, and in, the public, in public view of the whole church, they, they physically break the bread. Now, why do they do that? Well, one, it's what Jesus did. That was part of the ceremony of it, part of the sign of it. And in fact, Jesus himself applies the, the outward act of breaking the bread to its meaning. He says, after blessing it, broke it, gave it his disciples, said, take, eat. This is my body. And in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, Paul describes it. He says, this is my body, which is broken for you. The meaning of it in its breaking of the bread. So, and procedurally, so what we're going to start doing when we take the Lord's Supper is I'll go through this and I'll break the bread in our presence. And when you see me do that, or when you see Darren, one of the elders do that, what they're doing is they're reminding us physically of the deeper significance of the bread of Christ's body broken for us on the cross Similarly, many churches will also pour the wine. Now, that actually doesn't come up directly in the passage. It never says that he particularly poured the wine. We can imagine that they did, but oftentimes what churches will do is they'll have the wine in a vat, and then after they break the bread, they'll pour the wine into the cup. And again, ceremonially, this was significant for what, what the meal actually meant, the pouring out of Christ's blood. Number three, the third thing they did is they, he distributed it, the elements, and the disciples received it and took it. What's significant about that? Well, here we see the Lord is offering this meal and the receivers, the disciples are receiving it and taking it. And historically, the significance of this moment and what that's meant is it's a picture for the church of when you first received Jesus Christ by faith. So when you take it, when you actually come up and you take this and you receive it, in that moment of receiving, you're reminding yourself, and it's a sign to you of that day when you first trusted in Jesus Christ and you received him by faith. You're taking that element. You see that the depth and the layers here that have been practiced by the church. There's beauty here that I want to make sure we bring into our church Now, they're signs, okay? But the other word I said is that they're seals. Now, I described what a seal was. A seal is a signet ring, right? That's, That's put over a stamp. I want you to imagine for a second, what would happen to your faith? Just imagine with me for a moment if the Lord were to walk in here today and he were to give you a letter declaring your righteousness before him and on that he were to have his seal Seal of the King, and he were to walk up to you, and he were to hand deliver it to you, and he'd give you a nod of approval, and he'd hand it to you. What would happen in your walk with the Lord when you left here today? Something deep, right? If 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 the if the Lord was able to seal inside of you and and, and add some powerful outward display, some outward sign that that sealed in your heart the truth of your faith the depth of it the legitimacy of it for yourself and for everyone else that would be powerful in your life wouldn't it in a very similar way to that I don't want to go so far as to say in the exact same way but in a very similar way these are seals for us that when you take this, it's a reminder for you. It's a declaration to you and to your church family. God has done a work in my life. Why do we need that? Because when you go through life, we go through seasons. And, and the Christian faith is like this. If your faith is anything like mine, right? You go through seasons of it's a little more dry, and then it's, it's, it's growing, and it's a little more dry. Or it's, you go through a trial, and you're struggling. And what has to happen is, is the Lord uses this meal, in the midst of the great season, in the midst of the more difficult season, maybe where there's doubts in your life or you're challenged by trials you're going through, you're reminded and you go back and you say, that's right, he died for me. I received him by faith. My faith in Jesus is not to be questioned. He has secured my salvation. Philippians chapter one, he who began a good work in me will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus Christ. And so this serves as a seal in your heart. This is powerful for us, church. I think when we go through the motions of this, we miss out on this. Maybe we capture one or two of the the signs of the Lord's Supper. but We miss the seal, and I don't want to miss it. I want to make sure you get the strength and the power that this is supposed to deliver to you. Now, what I want to ask is, there's some confusion, I think, on the Lord's Supper, some some wrong ways to practice the Supper, and I want to make sure I'm clear on where I'm not going with this. I'm trying to give us biblical reflection, things to take this year and really think, how do I do this well together as a family? There's some wrong ways to do this. So, for, for example, one of the classic ways you've seen the Lord's Supper, if you, in the Midwest, many of you have grown up in the Catholic Church. And in the Catholic Church and in other, a few other denominations, they practice what's called transubstantiation. And that's the idea that when Jesus said, this is my body, what they believe here is that the bread itself, once the blessing is given, is literally physically turned into the body of Jesus Christ. And the wine is literally physically turned into the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, we would reject this. This is not what Jesus intended to say. And actually, what's happened over the years within the Roman Catholic Church is that the Roman Catholic Church has developed quite a bit of idolatry when it comes to the body and the blood of Christ. In fact, the elements, once the blessing has been said, are pretty much worshipped as if they are the, blood of, the body and the blood of Christ. There are ceremonies that are put around and, and worshipped at kind of the body, what they believe is the, the body of Christ. And we would say that's not what Jesus meant. When he said, this is my body... Remember, all the elements in the Passover meal had significance. The bitter herbs were the trials and the struggles of the people of Israel. The, the, the unleavened bread was the, 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 the hastiness that they left Israel. Okay, Jesus oftentimes used symbolic language like this to get at deeper meaning. Jesus said, I am the shepherd. Right? I am the bread of life. I am the door to the sheep. Okay? So Jesus is not intended to be taken very literally, overly literally here. And when that happens, what you end up doing is making an idol out of the elements. And so I want to avoid making an idol out of these. These are signs and they're seals. They're not to be idolized. Number two, they're not means of grace. This is very important. Means of grace. The only way that you get made right with God is not by taking these elements. This does not make you a Christian. When you put your faith in Jesus Christ, when you repent of your sin and you make him your Lord, it's at that moment that you're justified before a holy God. It's at that moment that all of the rightness of Jesus, all of the the perfect obedience of Christ and everything he's earned gets imputed into your life and you are declared righteous before a holy God. It's not by taking these meals or by getting baptized that you are made right with God. Rather, those are outward signs and seals of a deeper spiritual reality. A famous pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, tells a story. He says when he was uh, serving communion, and I have seen similar things like this in my own ministry, although the story he tells is just so wonderful. He was serving the communion meal, and he had said the blessing, and the elders were distributing the elements to the church. And he looked out, and there was a woman sitting in a seat, just bawling her eyes out, just bawling. And he saw the elements go by her, and she refused to take it. She just said, I can't take it, I can't take it, and then she just kept crying. And as a good pastor, he went up to her as everyone was receiving the elements and he said, what's the matter? What's going on? And she looked at him with tears in her eyes and she said, I am far too great a sinner to take these elements. I can't do it. And he looked at her and he said, it's the faith you're displaying right now that are the prerequisites for taking this meal. Now, let's try to understand that. What's required of us when we take this communion meal? What's required of us is that we have a repentant heart, that we come before God and we recognize that this is not to be taken lightly, that we are not coming here as those who are righteous on our own merit, but we come in week in, week out as sinners saved by grace alone, grace upon grace for sinners like us. And if it weren't for Jesus' blood on the cross, we would be separated from God for eternity. Repentant sinners, yes. Those who believe that they're righteous on their own, no, that's, this is not the meal for you. Those who are living in unrepentant sin habitually, this meal is not for you. If there is no repentance in your life, if there's no significant saying, I, I, I recognize that my life's out of step with what God's law is, or if you recognize what God's law is and you say, I don't care, I'm living in sin anyways, this meal isn't for you. And I'll show you that in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. What I'm getting at here is the third mistake We're not to make an idol of this, it's not a means of grace, but the third mistake we make is we somehow think that this is unimportant. And this is probably the one that more often than not happens in the walls of this church. When you think that this is unimportant, you come in and you, you sit through the sermon and you do the worship music, and then when you take these meals, what you're thinking of is how you get out of here after church is over to get to the Bears game. And that's what's on your mind, you're just thinking, let's get through this. And if that's your mentality, when you come to the Lord's table, I'm telling you we've got this wrong. And what I'm asking you to do is put some good biblical reflection in this to make sure that you don't miss what God wants to do through this meal together with you. 1 Corinthians 11, 27 to 30, let's raise the bar a little bit. He says this, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. That's a compelling passage. In fact, Jesus said that this meal is so significant in the life of a Christian that if you are taking this in an unworthy way, either if you've not put your faith in the Lord Jesus yet and this is not truly a sign for you, or if you're living in unrepentant sin and you're just going through the motions, that literally you might be eating and drinking judgment upon yourself. This is not to be taken lightly. This is a communion meal of the church family coming together, signifying and proclaiming to each other, and looking across the room. See, this is one of the more powerful things that happen. When you look across the room and you see your church brothers and sisters, the people you're doing life with throughout the week, and you know their hardships, you know their joys, you know their celebrations, and as a family, you come and you take of that bread and you take of that wine, and you see your family coming up here, you're looking at them and you're cheering them on, and you're saying, I know the struggle you had this week, and I know how much this meal means to you, and I'm praying for you because I love you. This meal brings a church family together when it's practiced correctly. Let me close on this story. I I heard a story recently. Some of you might have heard this. There's a a podcast I've mentioned before, The Rise and the Fall of Mars Hill. And I've shared my pros and cons of that podcast. It's quite popular today. But there's a story that was told in there that stuck out to me. The story was uh, in Mark Driscoll's church back years ago. And he had a, a young man who just was covered in tattoos, long hair, tattoos everywhere, who was giving some of the announcements in the church and an older gentleman, uh, just kind of a very well put together gentleman, had been in church all his life, had come into church because his, I think his son or grandson had been in that church. And he wanted to go check it out. What's this church like that my son raves about? So this older gentleman sits in the back and he sees this tattooed man getting up there. And in the older gentleman's mind, what he starts to think is, see that guy giving announcements up there? I, I, I should be discipling him. I mean, I'd be a good fit to, to mentor that young man. So the service went on and he's in the back kind of looking around, seeing all that's happening, all these young people in this church. And then it comes time to take the communion meal together. And the older man who's sitting in the back sees the younger man with all the tattoos on his arms and the long hair go up, receive the elements with his family and his three young daughters and take his family back and then proceed to gather his family together and gather them in a circle like this, put his arms around his daughter's and begin to pray over his family before they took the Lord's Supper together. And the old man in the back broke down in tears, realizing many layers, his own judgment of this man, but also realizing that there was something that young tattooed man had that he didn't have yet, and that that young man had a lot to teach him about faith too. This communion meal is important. And and what I want to see happen, the reason I chose today, to to, to talk about this is I want to see some healthy growth take place in the life of our church family. Husbands, I want you to remember that story. Fathers, I want you to remember that story. When we take the communion meal together, we'll... Pastor, you'll see we're gonna do this a little differently you're not getting that we used to do it where you come in the door and you get it over there no we're going to distribute them now that's what we're going to move forward with and it's still COVID so we have some changes can't quite do it the way we'd like to do it but we're still going to have you come forward and receive the elements in lines and what I want to do is invite you after you receive them and go back before we all take it together husbands fathers pray with your family let's be that kind of church and for those of you that are single that are here with us today or that are part of this church, pray, use that time as reflection to prepare your heart to receive what the Lord has to do in you. I believe God's got a good work ahead of us this year and I want to get this right. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we love you. I recognize today was a bit of a different type of sermon, a bit more learning. But God, I pray that the words of my heart will not land on deaf ears today. That that your word That's where the power is. It's your word, not my words, but your word would accomplish your purposes and would not return to you empty, but would succeed in all that you intended to do. And so Jesus, we do lift this church up to you. I pray over this church that you would bless it, Father. Bless it with nearness and intimacy with Jesus Christ. Bless it with the power of the Holy Spirit working through here as we live out the commands of the Bible well. God bless us as we seek to grow this year as followers of Christ. Whatever the convictions are, the people in this room, whatever the new areas of growth, whatever the commitments we'll be making, may we make them well. May we make them in reverence of the Lord. And may you do a great work in each of us. I pray in Christ's name.